chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I've entitled today's message, Godliness on Display in the Church. Godliness on Display in the Church. And when we look at this section, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on, well, we're going to look at three focal points. Three focal points. Let's read uh, from Titus chapter 2, verse 1, down to verse 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Keep reading. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. As we move into Titus chapter 2, it's significant to look at the word, the phrase good works is used throughout Titus. And to understand, you know, sort of seeing the forest from the trees, if you want to know where we're going, it helps to see the broader picture before we take apart the individual sections. And so what is happening is, Paul is calling the leaders of the church to model the behavior the church is called to live by. If you have leadership in a local church that is not living a life according to the way in which Titus 2 calls the church to live, then you've got severe problems. But by God's grace, if the men who lead the church exemplify the grace of God working in them, what takes place is they become those who by the Lord's grace can lead and guide the church. You look at, look at verse 
14 of chapter 2. Do you see how this overviews this? He says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. And in the context of Titus, what are the good works he's calling the church to? All the deeds that he lists in Titus chapter 2. Today, we're going to look at really three focal points. Three focal points. And in the, the first part of this, we're going to look at, the first is to look at the framework. Number two, look at the behavior. Number three, look at the implications. But starting off, look at the framework. The framework is an essential supporting structure of a building. An essential supporting structure of a building. A lot of people have gone to Titus chapter 2 and never considered Titus chapter 1. And when they think of Christianity, they think only of ethics. They think of morals. Christianity is definitely involved with ethics and morals, but it's much more. And when we look at the opening of Titus, I want us to examine the framework here because the first three verses give us the clue as to how verses in Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15 work and operate. And I want us to notice a couple of things here as we jump in. You see, the framework is critical here as we get started, we go back to Titus chapter 1. Let's read those first three verses. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. I don't know how to fix cars, but when something goes wrong with my car, what do most people do? You open up the hood and look at, just look, in, look inside. I don't know what I'm looking at, but it makes me feel more like a man. Just to look under the hood, right? Because here's the thing. Everything that's going on the outside of the car, everything that's going on with the functioning of the car has to have an undergirding. There's something underneath. There's a structure that enables everything to function. I want you to think about this here. What is the structure in the life of the Christian? that enables them to live out of the qualities we read in chapter 2. If we miss that, there's a possibility you could have somebody here that could misunderstand or misrepresent the gospel. And I want you to consider some of these realities that make up the framework. One reality that we saw in verse 1, even within the mystery of God's sovereignty and election is we saw the reality of God's gracious work from eternity past. Before there's going to be deeds within the church that are going to reflect godliness, there's something greater behind the scenes that is taking place. And what do we read in verse 1? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. We're reminded there that God has done a work in our lives that is greater than us, something we cannot even begin to comprehend. God has set his love on us. And then another implication from reading the first two verses of Titus 1 is that God's Holy Spirit 
regenerates the heart and implants his word. God's Holy Spirit regenerates the heart and implants the word. If you want to see the backdrop of what is taking place in chapter 2, you have to understand, first of all, there's something going on before our conversion that is miraculous. God has placed his love on us. God has set a plan for us. God has called us. But there's another part. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Now, wait a minute. What's going on here? What do we know about a Christian? You remember, um, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. What is different... And there's many things that are different, but one thing that's different from a Christian and a person that doesn't know the Lord is the reality of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I mean, we read about these, these, these realities that God is doing this inner work so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day day. And how did that happen? When did that take place? When we became believers in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit did a work within our life, and he gave us knowledge. Remember in 1 John, he speaks about the knowledge. He says, but you all know. You all have experienced a knowledge. So, so before we get into chapter 2, the backdrop of the letter is God's sovereign work. The backdrop for these Christians is the Holy Spirit who changed their heart and did a work in them. I was thinking about James chapter 1 when James says, Receive the implanted word. Wait a minute, who implanted it? Think about it. It was the Holy Spirit of God put his word within our hearts. And now that very word is the word through which the Holy Spirit grows us up into Christ. Another implication here of all of this is the reality that God has changed our affections. We now have a hunger and a desire for things that we never had a hunger and desire for. Every time that uh, we're eating vegetables at our house, it's hard to get Ben to eat any of them. And many times when he's eating those vegetables, he's like, I don't want this. I don't like this. He doesn't have a taste for it. He doesn't have an appetite for it. But it never fails. If we have ice cream in the freezer, what does he want? He's got a taste for ice cream. I do too. That's unfortunate. But he's got an appetite for certain things. But when you look at what's going on in Titus chapter 2, here's what you're seeing. You're seeing the reality of verse 1. You're seeing a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Why? Because Paul's saying, you teach the word, Titus. Teach the word. And what happens? Those that now have a knowledge of God grow in their knowledge of Christ through his word. And what does that word accomplish by the power of the Holy Spirit? It grows them into godliness. You know, if you are a younger person here in school, how do you grow? 
First of all, you got to know the Lord. You, you could don't look at Titus chapter two and think, okay, what God desires for me only in life is to live a life of good works. Well, there has to be something behind those good works. It's back to Ephesians chapter two. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not out of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then he turns around and says, okay, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There has to be something behind the works. And now as a teenager, if you go to the truth, if you listen to the truth of God's word, if you read the truth of God's word, the Holy Spirit gives you more and more knowledge of the truth. And what happens? It accords with godliness. It falls into godliness because that's the way that God uses his word to grow us up. So we start out three focal points. Look at the framework. Look at the framework. This is what's happening. This is why this is possible. And then he says in verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But as for you, Titus, you've got a responsibility. You're not going to act and you're not going to minister. You're not going to lead the way the false teachers do. They do things contrary to the truth of God's word. They seek to add to God's word. But your role, Titus, is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the word sound, I've mentioned to you before, it's the word that means healthy. Unlike the false teachers who teach doctrine that is sick, doctrine that is diseased, doctrine that is false you teach the healthy word and here's what's fun what do you what are we looking at when we go down from verse 3 to verse 10 we're looking at the ramifications of what the healthy word does in the people of god the healthy word produces godliness the healthy word produces healthiness it produces healthiness. What does it look like in each of these categories? What we're going to do as we look at the behavior, we look at the behavior, we're going to see how Titus goes from the older men in verse 2 to the older women in verse 3, the older women, I mean the younger women in verse 4, and then he comes down to verse 6, the younger men, Verse 7 and 8, he speaks to Titus directly. And then he speaks of the bondservants in verse 9 and 10. So each of these categories, Paul says, all right, understand the implications of who you are in Christ. And Titus, your job is to hold firm to the trustworthy word as you've been taught. And you teach what accords with sound doctrine. And as you teach the healthy word, God's spirit is going to take those that are of him. And because there's been a work of the spirit within them, you teach them the word. They'll grow up into knowledge. That knowledge will accord with godliness. And that knowledge will represent itself in the health and the life of the church to the glory of God. In the first category... As we look at the behavior, is the older men. 
teach what accords with sound doctrine. And I want you to, again, notice the contrast real quick. What does it look like when someone has not experienced the knowledge of God? What does it look like when someone has not experienced a regeneration of the power of the Holy Spirit? They're going to live in a way of the world. And how are some of these characteristics seen in chapter 1? We saw they contradict the word, verse 9. They are insubordinate, the false teachers here, empty talkers, deceivers. But then the one that's really telling is verse 12. Because Paul quotes an old poet from the 7th century. And he basically says, you know, what he said is actually true. And the old poet, the guy's name was Epimenides. I love that name. He said, Cretans are always liars, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. But by God's grace, those that once were known to be liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, now because of the grace of Jesus Christ, have the ability in Christ Jesus to live a completely different life. I want you to think about... What does it look like if you were going to jot down and go through the New Testament and say, okay, what does Paul, what do the apostles teach us about the characteristics of the ungodly? And I want you to think about that, students, in a junior high and high school setting. What would be the norm, according to the New Testament, of the basic characteristics of the ungodly? And what would that look like for a ninth grade girl, 10th grade girl, 11th grade boy, 12th grade boy? You could make a chart of all the basic characteristics. But I want you to think about it. It's as if Paul says, but for you, that's not who you are. What does it look like for you to live differently than over here? And that's what he does. He starts out with the older men. The older men of a society are typically going to be known for certain characteristics, but what does a godly man look like? And that's what we see. He starts out in verse 2, and he says, Older men are to be sober-minded. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. First thing I want you to observe from society, uh, imagine you're turning through the channels on your TV and you're watching a 30-minute show. How are older men typically represented by modern times? In a respectful, becoming way? Nah. In a very crass, crude, sarcastic, undignified way. But the men of God, and you say, all right, this is where everybody feels older than the room. What are older men? Who is he talking about? Well, you got to remember the lifespan of the days in which Paul wrote. It wouldn't have been, you know, uh, I guess now the average lifespan of a male, around 76, I think. 76, 77. Because you got to take into account there's a lot of people that live into their 90s, but there's a lot of people that die earlier than 60 even. 
And so most people that I, that I looked into, that they thought that this is potentially as early as 40. Uh-oh, guys that are 40, I'm sorry. Maybe it starts at 50, so I'm included in that group either way. But he says older men are to be sober-minded. What does it mean? They're to be tempered. They're to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. These are men in the church that are temperate. I was reading um, a commentary on this that it spoke of one um, writer at the time, around the time this was written, spoke of the priest of the Old Testament who were without spot in all respects, pure and temperate. It, it, it definitely speaks of freedom from intoxication. But, but think about it. What are people most likely to have excess in in society? If you think about what are the generalizations of people and what they pursue, what they go after in excess, and he's saying the older man in the congregation is to be self-controlled in the way he lives. He's to be dignified. It speaks about a dignity of this man that really marks his character. He, um, it's, it's a reverence. It's a, uh, it's a mark of their character that, that, that is seen in the backdrop of their life. I think it's exciting to think about. It's the same word that's used of, uh, you remember in Philippians 4 when Paul says how we're to think? He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. That's the word, honorable. He's to be self-controlled. He's to be honorable. There's a, there's a dignity of his life as he follows Christ. I was thinking about some of the examples on social media that I've seen lately. I mean, and just in life, you know, you've got the guy that's at the NFL game that's 50 years or older that's cursing at somebody from another fan. I mean, just bizarre behavior. A guy that you're looking at that's going, you're going, wait a minute, you know, like there's kids here, there's teenagers here, there's young men here, and you're acting like that? It's the guy that's on the golf course that always has too much to drink. It's the guy that, uh, I remember I had a teacher at Macaulay and, uh, in Chattanooga when I was in high school, and I'll never forget it. This, this gentleman was in his upper 70s, was a uh, man who had taught in the math department for 25-plus years. And I'll never forget it one day. He was teaching, and he made innuendo that was inappropriate. And I remember sitting there as a 17-year-old going, that's not the way this is supposed to work. Here you are in the last season of your life, and you're leading all of us into perversion. But the man of God is to be self-controlled. He's to be dignified. I, I want to encourage you because you, you, you could be here and you're 50 or plus, or I'm going to go back to 40. You're 40 plus. And, and you're thinking, wait a minute, you know, that, that's, not, that's not who I am. I, I, I'm not a dignified guy. It doesn't mean you can't laugh. It doesn't mean you can't have fun. But my, marks, my life's not marked by self-control and dignity, I want to encourage you because 
the word of God not only is profitable for instruction, but it's profitable for reproof. Why? Because sound teaching results in sound living. So there's hope. If you're with me and you're thinking, man, man, I'm discouraged already because I'm seeing my life and I don't fit into this category, you could be the very person in this room that becomes evidence of God's grace of the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's the power of the gospel, is when you come face-to-face with the reality of who you're not. You come face-to-face with the reality of your flesh and the reality of your weaknesses and the reality of your struggles. I think it's humbling, isn't it, when you start to have kids and you recognize things in your life that are not where God wants you to be. And it's as if there is a believer, the Holy Spirit is just drawing you to Christ and drawing you to his word. And the Holy Spirit begins to do this continuous work of sanctification in you. So regardless of how old you are, this is not a, okay, you're done. You didn't meet the test. No, this is evidence of the saving power not only for God to save sinners, but God's sanctifying power to take people and to grow them up in the faith. They're to be self-controlled. They're to be not only self-controlled and dignified. He goes on, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. They'll be sober-minded, I mean, dignified. And then he uses the word self-controlled, which is so similar to the word that we looked at earlier. When you look at the word sober-minded, it, it, it speaks actually more of the watchfulness and they're, they're watchful in their behavior. They're self-controlled. So sober-minded in a lot of ways is a synonym of the word self-controlled, but they're a little bit different. But he speaks of this man who is under the control of the Holy Spirit and who lives in a dignified way. And how is he described? He's sound in faith. He's sound in faith, he's sound in love, and he's sound in endurance. I love it. He's sound in the faith. He's sound in his faith as he walks with Christ. He's sound in love. He's a man who's marked by the garment of Christ in his behavior. He's loving in his way that he handles and deals with other people in the body of Christ and those outside the church. He's sound in faith and love, and he's sound in steadfastness. This is amazing because uh, the older you get, the more circumstances and situations you face. I remember uh, years ago, um, and, and one of those things you look back, you know, after you lose someone, and I think about the wisdom my dad gave me, and I never forget one time, I don't remember exactly where we were, but he was talking and something came up, and he said, Stephen, he goes, uh, until God breaks you, you're not usable. Until you're broken. And he basically was saying, you can be, you know, going and doing all these things in ministry, but there's something about the anvil, there's something about the, the, the crucible of, of suffering, of what takes place when an individual is broken and an individual comes face to face with his weaknesses and face to face with the goodness of God and, and seeking and God's desire for him to yield and, and to bear up under the trial. And what happens is you've got people in the church 
that have loved God and walked with God, and he's saying older men ought to model for the rest of the church what it means to bear up under a trial, what it means to endure, so that when a teenager looks at you and sees you going through difficulty and crisis and circumstances, they see an example by the grace of God of what it looks like to keep going. But then he turns right around and he goes into the category of older women. So older ladies, this is going to apply to the same age groups. I won't go any further than that. <laughs> he called me an older woman. But you get the implication, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. They're to be reverent. You think about examples of men older in age that are unbecoming and undignified. You think about women who are undignified as they age, not godly. What are they going to look like? Think about how social media would portray an older, ungodly woman, a woman in her 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s, and up who does not honor God and their behavior turns those away from the gospel. Their behavior is unbecoming. But here, these women that Paul is calling the church to look like, the women in the church that fit this description, they're to be reverent in their behavior. They're to be reverent. I, I think one thing that we need to be encouraged by is, is the scripture is going to be our guide as it comes to navigating all this confusion in our culture. I, I was reading, and it really is amazing, you know, because now you hear interviews with scientists, and they ask the scientists, how do you define a woman? And so often these ungodly, it goes back to Romans claiming to be, I mean, in their, they claim to be wise, but they reveal their foolishness. And what they say is, I was reading about it, and I couldn't even make sense of it. Um, in one article I was looking at, it said, there are as many ways of being a woman as there are women in the world. Now think about that statement. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There are as many ways of being a woman as there are women in the world. What would that even mean 30 years ago? Do you think about that? There wouldn't even be a sense of what the person was writing about. But what do we see in God's word? We see that we're created in the image of God. And male and female, he created them. And that God has distinct purpose in our gender for his glory. I think that's something that as you, younger people, as you get bombarded with the cultural teachings on gender, you have to understand God created you the gender you are for his glory. Now think about this. You get this, this norm of biblical manhood and what it looks like to be a man created by God to be a man and to honor and glorify God. And then you get this norm for God has purpose in creating females for a distinct purpose and for a distinct role in their life for the glory of God. And so to deny our gender 
as the way in which we were created and born is to deny the creator. It's to deny the designer. And Paul says, no, God has a purpose and a design for men in the church. He has a purpose and a design that's unique and beautiful and wonderful that displays his glory for women in the church. And, and one of the greatest ways I really believe that we can witness and we can model the goodness of God is by not only embracing the gender we were born with as a gift of God and as a purposeful creation and creative act of God, but by living according to the very roles in which he's designed us to be. And he says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviors, not slanderers. This, this woman here is reverent in the way they act. And one of the ways that that shows up, you know, when we think about <clears throat> it, it, this reverence is used of uh, that which is sacred. It, it's, it's suiting that which it, it points to a holiness and a reverence of the way they look at their life and the way they look to the things of God. They're not a false accuser. They're not a gossiper. They're not slandering. They're not speaking against people. An older woman in the church is to model this in her behavior, the way in which she acts and the way in which she lives. One I saw said it this way. There's four characteristics or tendencies of older godly women. Their behavior, their speech, their appetite, and their teaching competence. Their behavior, their speech, their appetite, and their teaching competence. Their behavior is to point to the Lord and the way they act. It's to be a reverent behavior. There was a, um, the word behavior is really interesting. In, in ancient writings, it was used of one who was, uh, it described the poise and composure of a woman in ancient times, composure. Um, it speaks about their holiness, their, the way they model this, reverent, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. I found it interesting that According to uh, one resource, it was common in ancient societies many times for older women to be drunk. They would drink too much wine. And, and, and an older woman is not to be so consumed with wine that she's known by her attraction to wine. Now think about that in the context of a local church. If an older woman in the church is not reverent, if an older woman in the church is speaking against and tearing down people within the church, if an older woman in the church is someone who just can't get enough wine, what type of example does it set for young women within the church of Jesus Christ? And it goes back to what Paul said in Ephesians. You know, we, we look at, he doesn't outlaw drink, but what he says is he outlaws intoxication. And in Ephesians 5.18, it says, um, you know, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so this woman's not a slanderer. She's not a slave to much wine. And then it goes further, and we begin to get into the younger women. And notice what it said. They are to teach what is good. 
Now, now this is exciting because it, it reminds us of God's gift of teaching to women within the New Testament church. What did we learn earlier? Elders are clearly a gender-related office. They are the husband of one wife. We saw the instruction in Timothy where Paul calls for the women to remain quiet in the church. We see that there is a biblical basis for a pastor being a man. But what do we find here? We see that a woman is to teach what is good. So, so one of the things we got to be careful of is we have to remember that women have a teaching ministry within the church. But when we put that alongside what we learned about the office of elder, this teaching ministry is going to be with women and it's going to be with children. It's going to be with women in the church. It's going to be with children in the church. And these women are to speak that which is healthy, just like the men are called to teach. You remember back in verse 11 of chapter 1 about the false teachers? It says they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families. Now think about the contrast. Now we're getting into the family unit because these older women are teaching the younger women. And these younger women have kids and husbands. And what's happening here? Rather than upsetting whole families, it's creating healthy families. It's encouraging the, the, the health of families. So, so the church of Jesus Christ is God's presentation to the world of his design and his purpose for the family unit. And so they are to teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands and their children I remember, I think about like uh, it being in church situations where I see it happen here. I see godly women who have kids who are coming alongside women who are just having babies, who, who are not only coming alongside women that are just having babies, but who are coming inside young girls who are teenagers who aren't even in a place of being at marriage. And what is to happen? You're to have godly influences within the church. You're to have people that are submitted to the word of God, where in which these people at every age group are looking at people that by the grace of God, they can emulate, that they can look to and see the grace of Christ. I remember uh, when we had Ellie, and if you'd have told us at that point that we would have six kids. We both would have probably started crying because we were overwhelmed and unsure about the next day. And it was like we were three days in, and um, it was a real traumatic labor for Anne. And uh, I never understood when I was single the ministry of Christian lactose specialist. <laughs> but I, I learned it quickly. And Anne was having a lot of trouble with Ellie. And there was a godly woman in the church that came to our house at 2.30 in the morning, knocked on the door and says, I'm here to help you. And I was like, whoa. And she ministered to Ann. And she, she encouraged Ann. And, and she was an encouragement to me because I didn't, I didn't have anything to help Ann with at that point. 
And, and, and she was, and, and you think about this in life, you think about um, so many of you godly ladies have kids that are out of college and God has given you the ability to encourage young moms. So many of you have gone through trials and circumstances that are unthinkable for many younger women and yet what you see here is this support system that is all built on God's kindness through his revealed word. And God has called people. It's a beautiful backdrop. You've got all these people in this church body that are simply here because they're called according to the electing grace of Christ. And now they're here. God's done a work of regeneration. God's opened up their eyes. God's given them a knowledge. And now the church leaders are to preach the word. And as the word is preached, God's life-giving power is ministered through his word. And people learn how they're to live out of who they now are in Christ. And the older men set the pace for the younger men, as we'll see in a second. And the, and the older women are growing in the grace of God, set the pace for the younger women. They teach them how God's design out of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, all the way through chapter 6, is not only to love their husbands, but to love their children. He says, love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled, isn't it? it? I love this because when you start looking at these words and you start looking at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22, and you start looking at all the results of putting on the new man in Ephesians 4, putting on the new man in Colossians 3. And you start looking at, wait a minute, this is what it looks like when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This isn't just good behavior that we are striving to do. God's spirit is working through his people by his living word and the reality of Christ in us is being seen in the expression of the family. That's what a gospel-centered church is. That's what a word church is. They're self-controlled. These young women are being taught what it looks like to be self-controlled, pure. And then he says, working at home. The phrase means a keeper at home, one who looks after domestic affairs with prudence and care. One commentator described it like this, one who watches over the affairs of the household. J.B. Phillips refers to it as home lovers. He says what he's opposing is not a wife's pursuit of a profession, but the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. The emphasis here seems to be that regardless of all the different things that a woman could be involved in, you know, if you go to Proverbs chapter 31, that woman was a busy woman, right? If you're familiar with that chapter, that's a really busy woman involved in many things. But the number one priority of this woman is her home. She's not going to neglect her kids. She's not going to neglect her husband. Her priorities are the God-given role that she's been given 
to play this part as a keeper of the domestic functions of her home. I think about, you know, there is no godly home apart from the unique, beautiful way that God has created a woman to function in it. There, if you think about the sadness of ideas have consequences, and when people begin to distort morality and distort sexuality, and you start to have all of these suedo homes of men married to men with kids in the home, they don't understand God's design for the home. They don't understand when two women are married together and they have kids in the home. They're neglecting God's creative design and they're rejecting the creator because what we see here is that God has designed a man and a woman and children in the home for the glory of God, for his glory. They're to be, they're not going to neglect you remember that? I can't remember the list. It's either, in, I, don't, I hate to say it like this because I'm not sure, but there's one list of speaking of in latter days. I think it's 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 up to like verse 12. And one of the characteristics of the ungodly is without motherly love. Without a mother's love. You think about the crisis and the brutality of abortion. You think about all the different ways in which we see secular society abandon their kids, downplay the significance of a family, speak about how their life is hindered because of the chain, the ball and the chain of kids, and you come back to the word of God and you say, wait a minute, God has designed a woman in so many incredible ways and he's given her so many creative abilities. But one thing is for sure, apart from the way he's graced her to live and to operate, the home cannot function according to its complete design apart from her unique way in which she is designed. And then he says, submissive to their own husbands. We looked at this and we saw Ephesians. And I'll close with this one this morning. But, but here's what's really exciting. When you look at this word submission, it's used in a lot of different categories, a lot of different areas where it's placed, but it's the word that means to place up under in an orderly fashion. And the one thing that's consistent in Scripture, when men and women are spoken of together, they're both created in the image of God. They're both fellow heirs of the grace of life. They're both interdependent on one another. One needs the other. The other needs the other. You see this over and over, but God has form and function in the roles in which he's created us. It's form and function in the way that he's designed us. And here what you find is that the older women teach that reality to the younger women. I like how Paul says it over in Ephesians. And when he speaks about it in Ephesians chapter 5, notice how he orders this. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's submission is not for the husband to demand. Submission is for the wife to willingly offer to her designer out of respect and out of 
submission to his design and his form and function. I tell you, when you really see this function in a way that's godly and holy, you go to verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You have this design in which a woman is submitting to a man who's sacrificially giving himself to her. And and so what's happening here? You've got all of these categories. Next time we'll pick up in verse 6 and we'll start looking at the younger men and Titus and the bondservants. But this morning as we close, I want to look at a couple of verses with you and then we'll be done. The first one's in Matthew chapter 5. Go over with me to Matthew 5. We'll read a couple of verses and then I'll close us. Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what it says in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And the last passage, just to put this in a summary, how in the world can this take place, what we read in Titus chapter 2, it is the fulfillment or one of the fulfillments of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. And notice this is exciting because God takes those liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and he transforms them for his glory. And now people that once lived just like they were known for had been called into the church of Jesus Christ. They had been awakened by his grace. They had been given the knowledge of God. They now had new affections capable of growing in the knowledge of God, and now they could live out of who they were in Christ. And Paul says in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Would you bow your head with me?